For those of you who have no class, as Eric said, he has none. You don't have to write them. <laughs> All right, everybody got those? Everybody's got them. All right. Forever hold your peace. Let's let's just pray. Let's uh, start our time with a word of prayer, and then we'll get ourselves going. Father, once again, we thank you for our time tonight, <clears throat> this time to be together, just to look at your word and to think about how to study it and how to uh, glean from it exactly what you mean and what you say. Lord, thank you for each one that's here, their desire to, to learn these things and to, to, in their own Bible studies, in their own time with you, put them into practice. Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause their hearts and their minds to be enlightened with these things, that they would... Uh, know you more and, and be able to share the truth of the gospel more clearly, that their understanding of your word would grow deep within them and that they would be able to flourish in their Christian lives and share uh, Jesus Christ with others. So we thank you for that. Thank you for these principles that we can learn and that you can uh, guide us in them and that we uh, can be uh, growing in our own faith as well as our understanding of you. So we thank you for that. Bless our time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Over the last several times we've been together, we've been talking about uh, basically observation, the whole idea of observing the text. We talked about sentences. We talked about paragraphs. And we left off with discourses. What is in a discourse? What is in a discourse? <clears throat> What's that? That's right. There are four types of discourse in the Bible, basically. There are narrative discourses. There are oratory discourses. In other words, giving an exhortation or some kind of advice or some kind of encouragement. <coughs> There is expositional discourses, and there are uh, procedural or practical discourses. <clears throat> so when you look at uh, discourses, the first thing you understand, you see there, is connections between paragraphs and episodes. What's in a discourse? Well, there are connections between paragraphs and episodes. In other words, there's highlighted and repeated words, uh, themes that occur in a text. Um, and so you want to be looking at those things. And I want to take us to a passage in Scripture uh, tonight as we just look at these this whole idea of connections, because I think you'll find it interesting uh, as we begin our time tonight in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And notice just this section, this discourse that takes place here in verses 22 through verse 26. It says, They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and he entreated him to touch him. So here's the disciples. They bring this blind man to Jesus. He's in Bethsaida, which is... Uh, 
uh, a town that he had gone through, and there's blind men there. They bring him to Jesus, and they ask him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began seeing everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Right? So that's the discourse. There is a discourse right there. And if we were just to throw it out there and and to ask you, what do you think that on the surface is about? What is Jesus doing? What is it about in that simple few verses, 22 to 26? Healing a blind man, right? It sounds like he's healing a blind man, and he certainly is healing a blind man. So you would go to Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 26, and say, I want to talk about Jesus' power to heal a blind man. Would you? Is that what Mark's trying to get at when he gives us that discourse about Jesus? When we talk about discourse, we have to look at things that are connected, connections between things. And if you take the section before verse 22, which is verses 14 through 21, and the following episode in Mark 27 through 30, you find some very interesting details that help us understand exactly what is going on in the passage of Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through, uh, I mean, uh, verse 22 through 26. And when you look at those two sections, you find that all three of them are episodes, all three of them are discourses, right? And all three of them, Jesus is asking a question, right? The first in Verses 14 through 21, Jesus is talking to his disciples. In the third, verses 27 to 30, Jesus is talking again with his disciples. And in the middle, there's something different going on. Jesus is talking with a blind man. In other words, this episode with this blind man, this discourse going on with the blind man, is sandwiched between these two other dialogues that are going on with the disciples. And so you have to ask yourself, is there something happening here that is by way of comparison or by way of contrast? And when you when you look at those passages, you notice that in the middle dialogue, the one about the blind man, it mentions the village. Verse 23 and verse 26, the word village is mentioned. The third dialogue mentions villages in verses, verse 27. Jesus ends the dialogue with the blind man by forbidding him to go back to the village. Jesus ends the dialogue following that by forbidding the disciples to tell anyone about him. In the middle, in verses 22 to 26, it all revolves around the terms related to seeing. 
vision, seeing, right? You have a blind man in verse 22. You have a blind man in verse 23. You have spit on the blind man's eyes in verse 23. He says, do you see anything in verse 23? And he looks up in verse 24. He says, I see people in verse 24. He says, I see trees walking. They look like trees. Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes again, verse 25. His eyes are opened in verse 25. His sight is restored in verse 25, and he sees everything clearly in verse 25. So in light of all of that reality of seeing in the middle, it's interesting that there are similar terms used in reference to the disciples in both those dialogues that begin or that are before it and after it. Because in the first preceding dialogue, he says, do you still not see in verse 17? Do you still not see or understand, he says? In verse 18, do you have eyes that do not see? Having ears, you do not hear, do you not remember? So the repetition there of seeing is used again in the first episode, the first dialogue, and the second dialogue. This repetition of seeing. Seeing in the blind man is literal seeing, literal vision, and yet seeing in the disciples is a spiritual sight that he's talking about. This vision that's spiritual. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you understand? And then Jesus repeats that question again. Do you still not understand in verse 21, right before he gets to this second dialogue? And so in the first dialogue, Jesus asked the disciples some questions. And He is asking them questions so that they realize they don't understand who he is. They don't see clearly. And they only see partially. They only understand part of it. And by the time you get to the third dialogue in this whole section, right, they see clearly. They now fully understand. They get it. They acknowledge him as the Messiah. And so the middle dialogue, this blind man episode, isn't necessarily about the blind man. It's an illustration that Jesus is using this blind man to help the disciples realize who he is and understand and see clearly. And so the blind man is being used by Jesus to say, here's who you were, you couldn't see, asking the blind man, do you see yet? Well, I see partially. And then Jesus touches him again, now I see clearly. The disciples are seeing clearly after. You see the connection between that and the discourses? Yeah. Is it always in groups of three? No. Okay. Okay, because we often talk about holy, 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 and, yeah. and things that are repeated in, sure. and in threes. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's the question was, I'm just to repeat this for people who might be watching. Is it always in threes, three discourses, and you have connections between three? No, it's not. It could be two. But there's connections within discourses too that that you need to look for, right? 
So between paragraphs or, or these, as I call them, episodes or, or discourses, you need to look for that. But also within those, we need to look for those kinds of things as well. Second thing is you look for shifts, right? Shifts and pivots and changes and things like that, because where the story breaks, that's a major turn. That's a major turn, right? A, a pivot in the dialogue is where that might take a sudden direction change and, and shift the direction in the story, much like Luke chapter 15, when you see the parable of the, of the prodigal son. There's some shifts that take place in there, and you see a change in what's going on. So you have connections between them, you have uh, shifts in the story, and you have interchanges. Third, interchanges. What's an interchange? It's just a, a literary device that, that tells two contrasting stories simultaneously that are part of a, a broader purpose, building a broader uh, uh, understanding of discernment through some kind of antithetical contrast that's going on. So you see that happening. Uh, in fact, we'll go over to Luke chapter 7. We, we looked at this. Uh, sure, the, um, it's a literary device that just tells of two contrasting stories simultaneously as part of a broader purpose. So it's a narrative. It'll often move back and forth between two stories to highlight the difference. And Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following does that. Right, The Pharisee requests Jesus to come dine with him. He enters the Pharisee's house to recline at the table. And behold, there's, here's the shift coming on. There's a woman who's a sinner. She's learned that he's reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brings all this stuff. She's standing behind Jesus. She's weeping. She's wetting his feet with her hair, wiping it with her hair. Her tears are wetting his feet. She keeps wiping his feet, kissing his feet, anointing them with perfume. And here's a shift. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this is and who's touching him. So the contrast there is helping us discern the heart of both of these two people and what Jesus is driving at in that text. So you have this interchange that goes on between Jesus and the Pharisee in the following verses. Jesus answers and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And of course, this interchange takes place to help us get an understanding of exactly what's happening in the narrative there between all that. And of course, it comes down to the very point that he who loves little forgive, or he who's been forgiven little loves little, implying that his heart is so sinfully sick he can't even see his sin. So that's part of the interchange reality that's going on. And then you have chiasms. Chiasms are, are a, a device that is used, but not very often. Um, I know Debbie loves chiasms. She tries to look for them wherever she goes. But this is an ancient literary device that, that really isn't used much in modern English particularly. Um, but it's used by biblical authors from time to time. And it's when 
an idea appears uh, in the first group, which corresponds to the last group. And then the second group would appear to the second last group, and then you have a middle that stands out. So it's almost like a pyramid on its side. So you have A1 that, that would be with D1, and B1 with C1, and then you have a middle that would be the point. That, that really is a chiasm, and I, I don't really want to throw out a, a large example of that in any kind of way because they're, they're, you're not going to see them really in your English Bible in, in any kind of big way. And so um, you're going to have to learn either the, the uh, original language to find that or... Um, or just trust us when they're there. That might be for like class two or something like that. But, all right, so let's just um, summarize observational skills because that's kind of what we've done over the last several weeks, okay? Summary of the observational skills. <clears throat> A trustworthy biblical understanding and therefore trustworthy biblical uh, teaching or counsel or discipleship if you're teaching with the scriptures, which is biblical counsel and discipleship. Biblical understanding is trustworthy is built upon a faithful study of the Bible. We ought to understand that as an overview of this observational reality. If we're going to be uh, those who are faithful to, to tell people what God means by what he says, then we have to understand that our understanding, trustful, trustworthy biblical understanding is built upon faithful study of the Bible. We can't take shortcuts. There are no shortcuts that we can take. And so we have to read the Bible and take note of the details at the sentence at the paragraph, and at the discourse levels. We have to take note of all of those things so that we can come away with an understanding that is what God would have us understand. Three, always be asking, what are the literary features of this text that I'm reading? The literary features of the sentence. What are the literary features of this paragraph? What are the literary features of this discourse? Why? Because they are the clues to its meaning. We could even say they are its meaning. I should probably change that in my in my slides because that seems to imply that there's some secret meaning. In the Bible, there's not secret meaning, so they're not. They're clues only in the sense that they lead us to the understanding, but they're not clues in the sense that it's secret. So we need to understand that. All right. So let's talk for a minute about 
presuppositions. Presuppositions. Boy, that went fast, didn't it? Let me see something. There we go. I don't know why it clicked over so fast. Let's talk about presuppositions, okay? What do you bring to the text as an interpreter? What do we bring to the Bible text as an interpreter? This, this is a crucial area for interpretation because we all have presupposition. We all bring them. What is a presupposition? It is your pre-understanding. <clears throat> your pre-understanding of a text. That is a presupposition. Something you come to the text with that is yours, right? We assume that our pre-understanding is correct. That's just who we are. We come thinking and believing that how we understand whatever it is we understand, it's correct. And we need to understand when that happens, that, that it's in us and it is happening all the time, that that's a heart issue of hermeneutical pride. Just pride. We have to work to be, uh, to be able to be taught. Why? Because a prideful heart will not listen or study. Prideful heart just won't do that. Prideful heart will go, I know what it said. I know what that means. You can't tell me. But a heart that's humble, a heart that is, has a presupposition of humility when it comes to the text will say, okay, I'm willing to sit down and, and, and let the Word of God amend my thinking if the Word of God is understood in such a way that my thinking is different and I have to amend it to the Word of God. Right? I can't say my thinking tells me what the Bible says I have to be able to say, the Bible tells me what my thinking needs to be. Okay? So it's, it's theological arrogance on our part to assume some kind of position, some kind of teaching from Scripture, some kind of doctrinal position that it's biblical without doing a careful study of the Bible. It, it's, it's really... Uh, sad to me that people will say to me, election's not in the Bible. That's just not a doctrine we ought to be teaching. They'll say, it's not election. God looks down through the annals of time. God sees who will believe, and then God chooses them, and that's why they're chosen of God. In other words, that God's electing of them is based upon their election of God. And I say, well, where does the Bible teach that? Can you please help me understand where the Bible teaches that? Because if the Bible teaches that, then I want to teach that. But if the Bible doesn't teach that, it's only theological arrogance of me to say that's what the Bible says when I've never studied it to show what the Bible said. So I have to go to the Scriptures, and I have to be able to sit down with the Scriptures and say, listen, this is why I believe what I believe. This is why I understand and I'm telling you what the Bible says. 
Not because I made that up in my dreams last night, but because the Bible has communicated to us exactly what God means by what he said. So you may assume that your presupposition is correct, and you have to be careful with that. Secondly, secondly, you may bring to your study a theological agenda you want to prove. Right? You may bring to your study some kind of agenda that you want to prove to somebody. In other words, instead of allowing the Word of God to be the final authority for your faith and practice, you already have determined the outcome. Right? The Bible becomes for you a proof text thing. I have my pet little verses that I tie in my pocket, and those are the ones I use every time because, because I throw them around like darts at people, and it silences people in whatever they say because they're my little hobby horses that I like to chime on. Right? So instead of allowing the Word of God to be the final judge, you determine the outcome for it, and the Bible becomes your proof text for whatever hobby horse you like. And here's part of the danger of that. If you have some kind of authority to help teach others, others are going to do that very thing as well. You're going to teach them that that's how you handle the Bible. That you cheaply handle the Bible and just proof text whatever you want. So our pre-understanding is important. So you may assume that your pre-understanding is correct. You might bring to your study some kind of theological agenda that you want to prove. And then third... Your familiarity with a text may inhibit a proper interpretation of a text. Remember when I brought up last time Luke chapter 10 and the Good Samaritan? And everybody said that's about helping others and loving others. We go around telling people that, and we even have Good Samaritan laws in our country. So that you won't be sued when you stop by the side of the road and help somebody when they're hurting. You won't be sued by them because the Good Samaritan law protects you of that. And the Good Samaritan is the story in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus is telling, and he's telling it to a Pharisee because the Pharisee wants to earn his salvation. He wants to justify himself. And so just like in Mark 8 that we showed that this whole actual reality of Jesus healing a blind man, Jesus is using it in an illustrative way in order to help the disciples understand who Jesus is and have clear vision. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is using the whole Good Samaritan parable as an illustration to say to the Pharisees, see, you don't even want to help those who you hate. You certainly don't want to help them. So don't tell me you love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor is yourself when you don't want to help them. So we can't just take a text and say, I know what that means. I know what that means. Without studying, we have to look at it. Right? I want to show you an example of this. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Did you know, by the way, 
I'm just going to throw this out there. Did you know, by the way, there's nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Scripture, that mentions anything about the subconscious? Now we say we have a, uh, that's in my subconscious, right? I have subconscious thinking. You've heard that, right? That's, that's a massive term used all over the place, particularly in psychological realms and everything else, right? Guess what? It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. God doesn't talk about it at all. God doesn't talk about it at all. Second Corinthians five says this, verse nine. Therefore, we also, having been having our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Right. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. Consciously, consciously, we walk by faith, not by sight. You have, we are of good courage. I say, prefer rather be absent from the body, be at home with the Lord. Yet, we set as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So it's our conscious reality of living by faith. It's not some let go, let God get out of our mind and we just follow along in some kind of subconscious way. We're not unconscious. Unconscious is not subconscious. Right? One man said, the automatic unconscious effect of our cultural upbringing on our understanding of a text will result in an interpretational reflex in us. Right? We have this, sometimes this unconscious, not a subconscious, but an unconscious idea about what a text is. We need to live not in this reflexive kind of way, because when we have these interpretative interpretation reflexes, It'll tend to fill in gaps and missing background from our cultural setting rather than from the Bible's cultural setting. And we'll read into a text rather than draw from a text. And so our cultural mindset tends to limit the parameters of our understanding. If we believe there's a subconscious, and we bring that cultural understanding oftentimes into the Bible. It doesn't exist. We have to be careful. What we bring to the text is very crucial. In our observations, it's affecting all of that, and we have to be careful to watch that because we all have it. So, what are the presuppositions that ought to be brought to our study of the text? What are the presuppositions that we ought to bring to a text that we have? Number one is this. Canon has 66 books, and it's 66 books that comprise the entire Word of God. That is a presupposition, a pre-understanding that is non-negotiable. The scriptures are a closed 
canon of Scripture, closed measuring stick from God from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books given to us. It is a closed canon. It is inspired. It is inerrant. That means God gave it to us and it has no error. The original autographs, there are no errors. That's the first presupposition we must approach the Bible with. You cannot have a Bible that can be added to. If we have a Bible that's going to be added to, who gets to tell us that it gets to be added to? Who gets to hear from God? I know there's people today who say they hear from God very frightening. But God told us in the Bible, in the 66 books of the canon, that he spoke to men in previous times, in previous ways, through dreams and visions, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we know of the scriptures because it's all about Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we have to bring as a presupposition. Secondly, The second one is that the Bible is trustworthy. It is trustworthy. Again, another non-negotiable presupposition that we bring to our study. The Bible is 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. It is not 66 books plus some others. It is 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. They are inspired, inerrant, coming from God, and they are trustworthy. Therefore, they are true in everything. They are sufficient in all matters of life and practice. That means there's nothing left out. How much of life is all life? All of it. Not one detail, right? Nothing is left out. So that means the Bible speaks to every issue of life we deal with. Every issue. Think about the issues you deal with in life. Think about the things that you you interact with on a daily basis. The Bible addresses these things in a way that will help us principally. So all matters of life and practice are in the Word of God. It is trustworthy, and it is sufficient. We need nothing else. We need nothing more. That is a presupposition, folks, that we have to bring to the Bible when we study it. So when I'm opening the Bible, I'm looking for answers, and I know the answers that I find in the Word of God are going to be sufficient for everything. I don't miss anything. I may not gather everything in that study of the Bible when I'm studying, but I know it's there. God has given us everything. He is sufficient for it all. And so when we come to the Bible, we come with that in our mind and our heart. It is trustworthy, sufficient for all matters of life and practice. And third, third presupposition that we must have is that God created the natural world And God can act supernaturally in that natural world.
God created it, and God can act supernaturally in it. That means miracles are possible. Miracles are possible. So we have a complete Word of God that is inerrant, has no error. It is inspired, comes from God. It is trustworthy and sufficient for all life and practice. And it tells us who made us and that miracles actually can happen. So when you come to the Old Testament and you read about the worldwide flood, you don't go, well, that that certainly couldn't have happened. When you hear the notions about evolution and how evolution created the world in millions and millions of years, and you read Genesis chapters 1 through 3, or 1 and 2, and you go, well, wait a minute, that's not how the Bible says it. Who's right? Who's right? Is the creator right, or is his creation right? God is right. So when God says he created it in six days, he created it in six days. You don't get to go, well, God spun the top, soon pulled the string and just set it in motion. And and over millions of years it happened and we find that in the little white spaces between the verses. No, that's not how it works. No, the Bible shows us that God created the natural world and that he is a supernatural being, and therefore miracles are possible. So did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I don't know. God didn't tell us. I would say they probably did, because what would their kids have said to them? You don't have a belly button. (laughs) I don't know, right? We can have our sanctified speculation if you want and say like the Pillsbury Doughboy, God went and poked the hole right there. But it doesn't tell us, God. It's not important. We know God created man and woman. Male and female, he created them. He didn't create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve. Male and female. And so all this notion about gender nonsense and all this confusion about gender is easily solved in the first few verses of the Bible. We don't have to be confused. The world is confused because they have gotten rid of God. We don't have to be confused. So we come to the Bible with that understanding. Number four, the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible does not contradict itself. Certainly it is diverse. Has all kinds of different things going on, and we may be confused about things, but it does not contradict itself. The author of Scripture, God himself, does not contradict himself. Throughout the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you have a unified story of God in his redemptive history and plan for mankind.
And then number five. Number five. The Bible is the ultimate and final authority in all matters of life and godliness. We've said this some before. We'll say it again. God's Word is the authoritative final voice in all matters for life and godliness. That covers our physical life and our spiritual life. There's no other life needed. That is it. No one has the right, therefore, to tell anyone else what to do with their life without, get this, divine authority. In other words, God said so. Right? So we as Christians can exhort one another and help one another and come and say, but this is what the Bible says we are to be doing. Right? That's divine authority. The scripture. They're the ultimate and final authority in all matters. Everybody got all that? Coming on. My my boss, when I was an air traffic controller, used to tell me, if you get busy, talk faster. Well, if you get busy, write faster. All right. So the Bible is the ultimate and final authority in all matters of life and godliness. So no one has the right to tell anyone else what to do with their life without divine authority. All right. So, some of you may be wondering, so if that's the case, is there... Is there a possibility to be objective when we interpret Scripture? Since we come with presuppositions, we try to fight against those presuppositions, there are presuppositions that we should have. Is there a way for us to be objective? Can we actually be completely objective when we come to Scripture? Total objectivity Shouldn't be our goal. That's just to say total objectivity for us is impossible. You look in secular history, professional historians try to get totally objective and they fail miserably. History is written by the victors. Right? There's no objectivity in that. So what should we be seeking? We should be seeking to hear what God means by what he says. What we should be seeking is that. Authorial intent. The intent of the author. That's what we should be seeking. Each and every time we come to the Scriptures, each and every time we open this book, we ought to be looking for the intent of the author. What did the author intend to say? Let 
What did he intend to say? We're going to, you need to have that in your mind. Write that over the top of every page. Authorial intent, authorial intent, authorial intent. I, I need to understand the author. What did the author mean by what he said? If you wrote a letter to someone, you intended to write it the way you wrote it and mean what you meant it to mean. The receiver of that letter cannot tell you what you mean by your letter. You are telling them what you mean. They have to discern the authorial intent of that. What do we do oftentimes? I know what you mean. I know what you meant by that. Really? Do you? Do you? Let me help you understand what I meant. Oh, no, that's not what you meant. Wow. Well, please go ahead, sovereign one. Tell me what I meant. Right? We, we have to be careful with that. When we come to the scriptures, we do that with God. We do that with God. We read a verse, we go, I know what that means. We skip all the things we've already looked at, observing any kind of thing, and we start to tell people, oh, that's what it means. No, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. In fact, I'll just show you. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I don't know how often I've been told this to myself. People have told me this. Verse 1. Do not judge lest you too be judged. Who are you to tell me what to do? You can't judge me. That's, that's how they see it. Where is, what is that sentence within? Within an entire sermon. It starts back in chapter 5. It goes all the way through chapter 7. Jesus is talking about all kinds of things. talking about how to live in the kingdom of God, how to be a kingdom citizen. Humility is the issue here. Not being the standard for judging other people on yourself doesn't mean anything about bringing the word of God up in somebody's life and saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. Well, you can't judge me. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. This is what it says. You can't do that. That's what people do all the time. So authorial intent is the issue. We have to always work to get to authorial intent. So how do we how do we do that? Well, we've mentioned the word a lot. Context, right? Context. We're gonna start dealing with context. First thing is historical context. Historical context. 
right? Why is it important to understand the historical cultural context of the scripture, of a text? When we're talking about historical context, we're talking about you have that little chart in your in your book there. What did these words mean to the original recipients? Okay, that's that's authorial intent. What did they mean to the original recipients? So when Paul wrote to the believers in Galatia, what did these words mean to them? Because what Paul meant to write to them is what they mean. So we have to then take that and, and bridge some, some gaps that we'll talk about over time. But So what do these words mean to the original recipients? And then what is the width of the gap between the biblical audience and us? Right? There's a lot of history. A lot of history. A wide gap there in history between them and us. Right? The last book of the Bible was written in probably 90 AD. That's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. And the first books were written 14 or about 1,300 years before that. That's a lot of history. So that's a big gap. Which leads to what are the theological principles in the text, right? When we understand the original recipients, then we bridge this historical gap and we talk about what are the principles within that gap, right? So it's going to help prevent our own cultural bias from entering into the text. From us reading 20th century thinking into a historical document that has nothing to do with 20th century thinking. Right? If God took such great care in his sovereign wisdom to communicate to us his word with its 31,173 verses and 774,746 words in the New King James Bible. He took over 1,400 years to give us that word and almost 40 human authors that the Spirit inspired to carry them along, as 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us, from all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of countries and areas, then we have to honor that by how we handle it, how we listen to it, how we look at the history of it. It's important for us to remember that the Bible was God's word to other people before it was God's word to us. Right? God's concern, God's concern for the original hearers was was great and so he communicated to them in their historical and cultural context. Not in ours, in theirs. And so when we're working with a biblical text, you're dealing with a different time, a different place, a different culture, a different situation. And so the key question that you have to be asking is, what is God saying to the original audience? What is God saying to the original audience of this? Because the true meaning of a text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken. That's what it means. What do we mean by historical context? What do we mean by historical context? Well, we mean God is transcultural. 
right? He alone is the author of Scripture. However, human writers were inspired by God through, through the principle and the doctrine of inspiration within their own human culture and according to their own makeup as people so that they wrote to a human audience in their own human culture and the historical aspects and settings of which they wrote. Right? So that's what we mean when we talk about historical and cultural context. God was using the human author, inspiring them in the time in which they lived, in the culture in which they lived, and all that was going on around them to write exactly what he wanted for us to know about his redemptive plan. So let's talk for a minute then about the human author. About the human author. When we talk about the human author, we mean what is, and we're talking about uh, understanding the historical context, we're trying to understand what the writer's background is, right? Understanding the writer's background helps us uh, see the scriptures through the eyes of the author. So when you're reading a book that Paul wrote, you want to understand Paul. You want to understand who Paul was, how Paul grew up, where was Paul living, what was Paul doing at the time, what was Paul's background, what was his unique background in certain things. And so you want the writer's background. Understanding that background makes the scriptures come alive in ways you would not know of it before. When did he write it? What kind of ministry did he have? What type of relationship did he have with the people that he's writing to? Many of the Pauline epistles are letters that Paul wrote to churches because Paul planted those churches. And so that helps to understand that. What, what, what was the, the context, or the we'll talk about it in a minute, in the audience, what was who he's writing to? What was their, their situation? What was the occasion for this? Whether it was a letter, a New Testament epistle, or whether it was like we've been going through in our study on Sunday mornings, the Gospel of Luke. Remember, I keep referring back to Theophilus. I keep referring back to why Luke wrote it. What was going on? Why are these little scenes there in Luke? Because Luke is trying to help Theophilus understand what he's been taught so that he has a certainty about the things he's been taught. Well, that's the same thing that we're supposed to be learning. John, in John's gospel, I wrote this that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So everything John wrote about points to that. So all that history and context, historical context and about the author helps us with that. Everybody got those? All right, so what about the human audience? Go back. Oh, hold on. There we go.
I talk faster than you can write? Okay. I'll try to slow. Everybody got it? You there, Jackie? You got it? Yes, I now. Okay. All right. Human audience. Some of the same kinds of questions that we ask of the author, we ask of the audience. What are the circumstances of the biblical audience that is being written to? What's going on with them? Are they people on the side of the hill being walking, following Jesus around? Are they disciples who were called from the seashore or from someplace out of the tax office and now they're following Jesus? Right? Who are, who are the audience that is being talked about in the text? Who's being written to, or who's the audience in the text being written about? What do they believe? What's their doctrine, or their worldview, or their value, right? When Paul goes to Greece, and he's in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he's talking to a whole host of people who have a whole lot of different ideas about who God is. Well, you have to understand that, so you need to go into the cultural background there and try to understand a little bit about why they were uh, these pantheists and worshiping all kinds of different gods and even had a statue to an unknown god because we don't want to miss one. We forgot about it. You have to understand that so you can get Paul's, why Luke is writing that in Acts about what Paul did in Athens. But what do they believe? What's their doctrine? What is their worldview? What are their values? And then, of course, how are they responding to the circumstances? Right? Peter, when Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, just go there for a moment. After you write these down, you can. Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't understand some of the history and the cultural context that's going on in the audience and with Peter himself and Peter's understanding of all that, then, then when you read verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, it doesn't have the impact that it ought to have. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Well, there's persecution going on. And some historians say it was under Nero, and Nero was burning Christians at the stake. That's a pretty hot trial. Well, these are Christians, and Peter says, listen, in... Uh, a little bit later, you gotta you gotta obey the authority. You gotta obey the government. You gotta come under the government. Well, they're living under a pretty nasty guy. And so, when you read that and you understand that context, then then you bring that into your day and age. And you go, man, I, I don't that man. What am I doing whining about life as a Christian? These people had it horrific. Don't think it's strange that this is happening to you, but that to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing. 
Wow. You say, I'm not doing that. I ought to be doing that, but I'm not. Well, part of that's because I don't understand cultural context. So I don't understand the text. So I don't understand the human author and the human audience. So I don't understand the authorial intent. What are other historical cultural elements that we have to look at? Other historical and cultural elements. Geography. Places in which people are traveling and going. You have different geography going on. You have topography that is different. Right? When you see it says, we went down to Jerusalem. Right? That's certainly... Uh, or up to Jerusalem, I'm sorry. That's certainly because Jerusalem was up. Right? If you go down to Jericho from Jerusalem, you're going down because Jericho was about uh, 2,500 feet below where Jerusalem would have been. So it's a geography difference. It's a, certainly a topography difference. And when you, if you've ever been to Israel, you certainly know what that looks like because they'll take you down the road to Jericho and the windy dirt path that goes down a dry wadi or a valley that takes you down the hill. So when you read those things and you read the passage in Luke chapter 10 and Jesus' illustration of the Good Samaritan you understand what was taking place. You see it differently. So you have to look at those things, geography, topography, social things, religious things, political, economic elements, all those kinds of things. You need to look at those things. Any questions? Bible study is easy, isn't it? Sure it is. Is this why you normally only get two verses for a sermon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now you're catching on. Yeah, because it's hard. Because it's hard, and I'm stupid. It takes a long time for me to try to figure out what it is I say. And so, yeah, that's why we don't move fast. And besides that, why move fast? The Word of God. The Word of God. Right? It's not a gym. We're not on the treadmill. Let's take our time. All right. Are there dangers in studying background? Dangers in studying background. There are. There are. Now, you have to be careful that you don't have inaccurate background information. That happens. That happens even to the best of people who do Bible study. Right? There's a lot of imprecise science and a lot of people writing information that isn't necessarily or even it is blatantly inaccurate. So be careful of inaccurate background information. Yeah, I know there's a space there you shouldn't have, but yeah. 
Yes. Can I just say one of the things, one of the places to really look out for that is when you're reading commentaries, because sometimes they quote other commentaries and there's no primary evidence to support it. Right. Yeah, I'm going to give some uh, some resources or at least some types of resources that you can use. So be careful of inaccurate background information. And like uh, Debbie said, commentaries are oftentimes a large source of that. <coughs> Contrary to popular belief, commentators oftentimes write commentaries, but they haven't read they haven't studied the scriptures to write the commentary. They've just read other commentary. And so the perpetuation of ignorance goes on and on. Two, be careful of making the background data more important than the text itself, the meaning of the text. It is important, but the background information is not the meaning of the text. So why do I say that? I simply say that to say that when you're sharing the meaning of a text with somebody, background information is important and you can share some of that, but don't dwell on it. It's for you. It's for you to understand the text. Some things are pertinent that you can share, but don't dwell on it. Why? Because you become a walking data-based dump of just trivia facts. like silly Bible facts that I often talk about with people. Did you know there's a motorcycle in the Bible? Joshua rode his triumph throughout the land. There's a Honda too? Really? There you go. There's baseball in the Bible, too. You know that. In the beginning. Come on. It's right out of the start. These are the things you learn in seminary. The good education gone to waste. Yes. Don't read my commentaries. All right, and be careful of teaching the background information instead of the theological application. Be careful of that. All right. All right. So let's just give you some recommended resources. Bible handbooks. Bible handbooks. This is resources for finding out historical background information. Bible handbooks. Right? They're usually good for general articles, overviews, things like that, special topic articles. Two that are helpful is the Holman Bible Handbook. Holman Bible Handbook. I didn't list them in here because I would have had to make the font too small. H-O-L-M-A-N. Holman Bible Handbook. Or the Haley's, H-A-L-L-E-Y-S, Bible Handbook. There are others. 
and you and certainly you can find other ones that are out there but those two give you general articles overviews special topics oftentimes most commentaries although we'll I'll talk about those in a second but most commentaries will give you some historical information but again you have to be careful of that in the beginning Old Testament and New Testament introductions and surveys. Um, that's just what they're called, a survey of the New Testament or a survey of the Old Testament or introduction to the New Testament or introduction to the Old Testament. Um, they'll give you background information of each book of the Bible. Right? There's one that was out years ago by, by two authors, Wilkinson and Boa, who... Uh, one of the guys has kind of gone off the deep end, but the book that they wrote years ago called Walk Through the Bible is a good book. It's helpful with background information. It's helpful. Um, sometimes it's hard to mess up just general information from history because it's so many different places that are out there. So even though the guy's wacky, his book is okay. They discuss all kinds of things like authorship, date, you know, all those kinds of things, general information about the Bible. Have we got that? Yeah, our, our church library has these kinds of books in it. Third is commentaries. Like we said, you have to be careful. There's several different kinds of commentaries. There are homiletical commentaries, which are basically commentaries of, of preaching, messages that are, that are compiled and put in a commentary, and it's called a commentary on a book, and it's basically a pastor's messages that are preaching. In fact, uh, MacArthur Commentaries, the commentary series by Dr. John MacArthur, is a homiletical commentary. There are some details and data in there, some Greek definitions, things like that, but it's not as technical as you would find in, let's say, an exegetical commentary. An exegetical commentary is a more technical commentary. It will give you more of the original language and the meaning and sometimes the sentence structure and the syntax of the sentence and things like that. So there are different kinds of commentaries out there, and most people who study the Bible who don't know anything about hermeneutics, will just reach for the commentaries and they'll find an author they like or an author that they know they can trust or think they can trust and they'll just regurgitate what that author said. Well, how do you know if he's right? How do you know? I know I don't ever get anything wrong. Right? You, you, can, you can be wrong. Right? There are things we get wrong. Well, even the best guys the most trusted guys get things wrong. And so you just have to be careful. But one thing for sure is you have to be sure that whatever commentary you you get, that they have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. If they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, get rid of the commentary. If they don't believe God created, that the Bible is 66 books, get rid of the commentary. If they don't believe that God created the heavens and earth in six literal days, get rid of the commentary. You're going to have a problem. Right? So you have to be careful with that. Because all of that is going to 
come out in their explanation of a text. It's going to be filtered in there. Bible atlases, that's for geography, things like that. You can pick up any Bible atlas. That is going to help you with where places are. You have a, Most of you probably have a simple, very crude Bible atlas in the back of your Bible. It has a couple maps. It's going to give you some maps of ancient Israel and more... Um, times close to when the when the New Testament was written and these kinds of things. So you have a little simple, but there are more uh, more helps in that. Alfred Edersheim has a lot of stuff on the history of Israel and things like that. And, and you won't get necessarily geography, but you'll get things about the temple and, 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 and historical uh, parts in Israel that will help you understand things like that. Edersheim, it's Jewish. I don't know. E D E R shine. Probably Yeah. Something like that. Alfred Edersheim. Yes. Now you can tell I'm not a spelling bee. What's that? Names are hard. They're not always consistent. Yeah. I'm just stupid. That's it. All right. Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, right? It's a good place when you want detailed information on some kind of topic, especially ancient terms, things like that. The International Dictionary of, what's it called? Uh, what is it? International Dictionary of Encyclopedia. International, what is it? No, it's black. It's in my office in the bottom right shelf. Big black book. You can get, there's four volumes. You can get one volume, bring it out here. If you want. I think my office is over. Anyway. And then background commentaries, right? It explains the culture and the background within the. Uh, Zondervan does one too. The Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible is a good uh, encyclopedia. Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the International Standard Encyclopedia. This is one of four volumes, but it it, uh, does a good job. With a lot of the information. It's just like a dictionary, set up like a dictionary. I'll pass it around. You can look at it. All right. Everybody got those? Or should I go back? Everybody have them? Okay. Number seven Old and New Testament histories. Talked about those a little bit already, but but these are just more resources in that area. And then any kind of special study in ancient life or culture. 
there's all kinds of books on different cities in the in the ancient times um, and you can get articles on those things um, Edersheim writes a book called Life and Times of the uh, Jewish Social Life. It's about all about Jewish social life. That's in the title. I can't remember the exact thing, but um, those would be good studies on that. And then, of course, there's electronic formats that can help you immensely computer software. We live in a time where we can access information like nobody's business. How many of you use a Bible program of some kind on your computer? ESORs, a lot of you use. Logos. Some of them you have to pay for, some you don't. Logos, right? How many of you use, ever use Blue Letter Bible? Phenomenal. For a free program, absolutely phenomenal, the kind of information you can get on Blue Letter Bible. has the original languages on there. It has easy access. It's quick pop-ups. It's, you can access commentaries, certain commentaries. You can access histories, articles, all kinds of things. And the, and the people that put it together are pretty solid people, so it's a, it's a great resource. Blue Letter Bible. It's on there. Yeah, and it has an app too. Blue Letter Bible has an app, so you can get it on your phone and use it like that. It's really, it works really good. I, I, I have one on my, I have a paid one on my, on my Apple computer called Accordance. Accordance is very extensive. It's not cheap, so you, you got to pay a lot of money. But, but Blue Letter Bible, I use that often, even though I have this other program, because it's so simple to use. So simple to use. So, all right. So, what is then the historical cultural context of the immediate passage? That's what we have to ask. So, once we've established the historical cultural setting of a book that we're studying, then it is imperative for us to identify the historical cultural context of the immediate text we're studying. So we have to look at all of those things, geography, politics, religion, economics. Now, I know sometimes you guys are wondering, okay, gosh, you know, how does, you might be saying, how does Terry do that? You know, every week, got to go through all that. Well, once you study the history and the context in that kind of sense, you, you, you know it. It's, you know, the history of Galatians is the history of Galatians. I don't have to study it every time I open the book of Galatians after I know the history of Galatians. So that step is quicker. And the more you're in it, the quicker you can get in it. But one of the best things you can do just to kind of get an overall view of, the, of, of whatever it is you're studying is read the book in one sitting. Read the book in one sitting. So if you're studying in a, in a gospel, that's going to take you a little time, but you can do it. Why? Because it's going to help you get an overall view, an overall observational view of what's happening. 
You may not understand all the details. We get that. But you're getting a bird's eye view of everything that's going on, which is going to help you when you start to pull the pieces apart and go, oh, okay, that's where it's fitting. That's where it's going. That's what's happened. Right? If you don't do that, then you can get yourself confused when you're studying the small parts because you forget you're so tied into the trees, you forget the whole big picture. You forget the forest you're in. And so you can lose your way pretty quickly. You want to have a big, a big picture of it all. So when you're, um, like you're doing this now, yeah. do you from time to time do an overall reading of it? Just Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm in it all the time, so I can read pretty quick. I mean, I, 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 I can read and decipher and, and see patterns pretty quick because I know what I'm looking for. You know, uh, after 30 years of being in the weeds, I should know something about the weeds. Um, I, you know, you shouldn't expect that from yourself and you know, right out of the gate. But, but when you do that more and more, I mean, when I was in seminary, our, the professor would say to us, listen, you need to read that before you do anything. You need to read the text 30 to 40 times. Yeah, read it 30 to 40 times. Well, you read, you read one of the epistles 30 to 40 times. If you don't know something, you're sleeping while you read. Right? And they said, read it not just in one version. Read it in several different versions of the Bible because different translations say it differently. Put nuances on different words and things like that. Well, that gives you, at least when you're coming to it, you already have an overall picture and flow of what's going on. And so then when you start to look at the individual discourses in smaller parts, it, it becomes less of a project, less of a project. So I would, I would encourage you to do that. It doesn't take that long. It really doesn't take that long. I mean, you, you could sit down and read. And I'm not talking about reading and you're comprehending every word. You're reading through it and getting an overflow understanding, a general understanding. You can do that in a short order. If you if you just force yourself to read over and over and over again, do it fairly quickly. Yeah, Sebastian. When you say family structure in life, is that referring to like if someone has like multiple wives or? All of those kinds of things that took place in the history of that we find in the scriptures. Why that was happening? How come that was going on? What was taking place in that? Whether they had a wife, whether they didn't have a wife, all of those kind of things. Yeah. That's all part of it. Uh, otherwise, you, we, you know, it's easy. It's easy to be confused about things when we we don't understand. And we can run off in rabbit trails. Why do you think the Mormons believe what they believe about polygamy? You're asking me. No, I'm just asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, if you want to venture the answer, go ahead. <laughs> What did you say, Neil? Say bad hermeneutics. Bad hermeneutics, yes. Bad hermeneutics. It's in the Bible. Must be right. One, one good resource for um, Yeah, social life. Sketches of Jewish social life. There are different practices in the northern area of Galilee compared to the southern area of Judea. Right. So when Jesus talks about marriage and bridegroom, 
he's in a look notice the area he's in when he's using that as an example. Right. So there's different region within a different region. You might have a different cultural context that's going on, and so you have to know that, or or you can. I'm not saying you will come out with the wrong interpretation, but you're certainly prone to it if you don't have that. Certainly prone to it. So, and then you get into all kinds of things, right? If you come out with the wrong theology, build a whole kind of religion on the wrong theology that leads all kinds of people down the road where they think they're okay and they're not. So we want to be careful. All right. Well, I'm, I'm at my transition slide. So we're all done. We're done for today. Any other questions? That now, now I'll just say to you, I'll just say to you that that's a bad interpretation of the class. <laughs> no. Take pictures with your phone. Yeah. Yeah, or or wait until the guys from the sound room put it online, then you can get it all again. So thank you, and we'll meet uh, whatever the date said. Stop with one, but they can.